Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Luke, chapter 5, verses 33 to 39. In your pew Bibles, this is page 800 and, wait, 962. Again, it's Luke 5, verses 33 to 39. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make them wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skin and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says the old is good. This is the word of God. We are in a brief series where we refresh our vision. And so if you are new to our church, this is a good time for you to find out what we stand for and and what we believe our church is about. And especially for all those of you who are regulars, so you know this is a really important year that this congregation is going to be established as its own church. And so what is this new church going to all be about? And that's what we're talking about in these in these in this early four-part series. Now, I spent two Sundays talking about this very important passage. It's a tremendously important passage. Um, If all of you would know this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, about to a Jew, I will be like a Jew. To those outside the law, I'll be like a law. And, And I will do all things for all so that I would save some, that, that, that would, you'd make me very happy if, all, if you all knew that, that passage, because it's such an important passage that lays out how we're willing to cross cultures to, and, and how we're also willing to reach the, um, the unchurched and the church. That's what we talked about in the first two weeks. But this passage is also tremendously important. This passage about new wine and old wineskins and why it is that Jesus says we don't fast in his Um, that his disciples don't fast. This is a passage that, um, I don't know if I've preached this. Um, uh, When I first came here nine years ago, um, I did a a midweek Bible study series through the Gospel of Luke. And when we got to this passage, it just kind of exploded off the page, and I realized, my goodness, this is so tremendously important. Um, So many times when I think about how our city needs a new kind of witness, a new fresh gospel witness for people who tend to only see Christianity in certain categories. Um, I often think about this passage, new wine and new wineskins. So we're going to spend two weeks on this. Um, today Today is, a, is really, um, if you are a Christian or you've been a Christian for a while, I don't think you're going to hear too much that's new from me today. Today is just a good gospel message. Right? And even though it isn't new for you, I hope it never gets old. Right? Because what is our church about? It is the gospel. And the power of what it means that we have believed in what Jesus has done for us, what we could not do for ourselves. That's what we're talking about today. 
And so um, next week we're going to talk more about what does the gospel do to form a new kind of community. But today I want to talk about what, how does the gospel change you? How does Jesus and his presence change you and me? So let's get into it in three parts. Part one, the new wine and the union with Christ. The new wine and the union with Christ. Part two, there's also a portion here where Jesus talks about an old wine. The old wine, and there's a problem with the old wine, and that is the old wine, I like to think of the old wine as Phariseeism. The old wine and Phariseeism. And part three, um, grace makes things new. This is 2018. You guys are, I hope, you, are you, I hope you're still following through on your exercise resolution or your eat less resolution or whatever is your, your 2018 resolution is. But um, more than your resolutions, um, we call you to faith that Jesus makes things new. He's going to even make you even new, even more new than you ever believed this year, okay? So part one, the new wine and the union with Christ. So this passage starts off. Um, with a question. So this is relatively early in the gospel. And Jesus, people don't know who this guy is. I mean, they can see that he, is a, he has prophetic power. He has incredible preaching skill. He's going out there. He's, he's, he's uh, healing, um, cl- cleansing lepers, uh, raising, um, you know, raising up people right past before it's uh, paralyzed people. And, people, and so um, attention is being drawn to him, and yet they, they're confused because they, goes, there's this other guy named John, and by the way, John is Jesus' cousin, and he is, he's in the last, he's like one of the last of the prophets here to point the way to Jesus. All the prophets throughout the, um, the Old Testament call the Lord to say, you are married to God. <laughs> and don't you understand that the, the Lord himself is our bridegroom? And he calls us to himself. That's, this is a message all throughout the Old Testament. And, but the Old Testament is always part, but there will be one who will come. And he will bring God's presence. He will make this marriage more completely full. That's what he's doing. And so, you know, they, right now, so there's this longing, and they know that there's this one who's coming. His, his, his name is, the, he, they call him the Messiah. And he is the one who's going to make this wedding feast finally here to come. Now, I don't know if you know this, but throughout much of um, the four Gospels, Jesus isn't very explicit. He doesn't tend to just say, by the way, I'm the Messiah. <laughs> he doesn't do that. Because what would happen is just all kinds of factions would start to war. Um, look, today, in America today, we know that religion and politics, that's, that's, a, that's a nasty thing to mix but back then, they had a very powerful political conception of the Messiah. That the Messiah is going to be this one. He's going to you know, destroy the Romans and establish the power of Israel and all these things. And so Jesus is already, he is the Messiah, but he's, he's, he, he knows the conceptions of the Messiah are already all wrong and very power-oriented. And he's going to reshape and redefine according, really according to scriptures, but even something that they've never seen before, what the Messiah is. And so he, isn't, he doesn't tend to just say he's the Messiah, but this passage, it's, it's pretty close. <laughs> because all throughout the Old Testament is this longing that God, he's, he loves us as a bridegroom, but he has re, he's also cast us forward. I and mean, then they're in exile here. And so exile, you know what exile feels like when the temple has been destroyed? Now, this, they still have the temple, but there was a period when the temple was destroyed. What it feels like is divorce. 
that God has rejected us. So they know that the Lord loves them, but they're longing for this thing. And so they ask him this question, which is like John, and he's, a, he's like the last of the prophets pointing the way to Jesus, the Messiah. And he goes, well, you know, he has disciples and they do this fasting and this fasting prayer thing. How come your guys, well, they eat and drink. And these guys are like, I mean, they like party. Jesus, you party. And you party with like prostitutes. I mean, like what kind of a weird, you know, what kind of a weird preacher are you? And he asked this question, and Jesus' answer, it's a very strange answer. He doesn't talk, he doesn't even bother talking about like, like fasting, praying. Instead, he says this extraordinary thing. What he's saying is, well, when the bridegroom shows up, who fasts? You understand what he's saying here? This is as close as saying, I'm the guy. <laughs> I'm it. The guy you're waiting for, the wedding feast is about to happen. And you guys all understand this. I mean, Fasting is a, you know, Jesus isn't saying, you know, he's not abolishing fasting here, but what he's saying is, um, you know, when, when, when the bridegroom shows up, because back then, the, the, today, you know, you, you might have remembered what Pastor Min Chung said, you know, during our thunders who went to the retreat, that today, in our weddings, that the bride tends to be the star of the, um, of the, uh, of the wedding, but actually, in their culture, the bridegroom <laughs> was really the centerpiece so, because Israel understood that they were the bride, and that when you go to a wedding, it enacts the fact that we're waiting for the bridegroom. And who's the bridegroom? It's God. <laughs> so when the bridegroom shows up, then, of course, it's like, you know, if you guys think that we party, these guys party for days. <laughs> I mean, it was expensive, and it's like party, party, drink, drink, dance, dance, for days upon days. That's what it was like. Right? And so... You know, we tend to fast, and you know, fasting is not, fasting is, you know, why would we fast? Um, it isn't bad to, I mean, just, just for a moment, like, other traditions within Christianity, other camps of Christianity, like Catholics, for many, I don't know if they still do this, but for many years, they had a regular, they had a regular habit of fasting. And some Catholics still, like, certain calendar portions of the year, they would fast. I think it's good, all right? That's, that's not a place within Christianity that I think we disagree with them, right? But they do it better than we do, quite frankly. So do Eastern Orthodox Christians. They tend to have more of a habit of fasting. But why is it that Protestant evangelical Christians tend not to, to, to have this practice as much? It's because of this passage. Because huh. we believe that if you, if you embrace the gospel and you believe that Jesus has come... The guy has come. The bridegroom has come. And we now are, can we, we don't have to primarily be, because fasting is, is primarily to say we are hurting. <laughs> we are sinful. We fundamentally feel the lack of you, God. <laughs> and we are, when you're beset with your sins, so why would there be times of fasting, for instance, if you feel that there's a time in your life you feel far from God? And so, you know what you're saying? So, look, if you're feeling kind of low, what do you tend to do? Okay, like, this is what I do, and this is like a real common thing. Why is, what is fast, the meaning of fasting? Um, if we're feeling kind of low, what do we do? You eat. <laughs> you know, in America, apparently we feel low because a lot of us like to eat, okay? And uh, that's what we do. Um, you know, some of us prefer like a little bit stronger drugs. I'll, you know, look, I like my I like my drugs to be legal, right? You know, some people choose marijuana and illegal drugs, but like my you know my favorite 
you know, drug of choice, I've said this to you, is Haagen-Dazs, <laughs> cookies and cream, <laughs> maybe coffee. That's, that's, that's my, because that's what we do. You feel low. You feel low about yourself. You feel kind of empty. Maybe there's a particular sin or depression or anger or something that besets you and controls you, and you feel that you need more of God. Huh? And what would people do? You, you, you fast. Because if you, you fast, guess what? You get a lot more, first you just get a lot more time, because if you fast, now you have breakfast, that's the time to pray. Now you have lunch, now you can pray. (laughs) Now you have dinner, now you can pray instead of eating, you know, instead of like spending three hours on prepping and eating food, now you got three hours to pray. And you also have something else. You're saying, I'm not going to go to something else in the world to fill me up. I feel weak. I go to you. This is the right way to fast, right? But... Why would you ever fast during a wedding feast? <laughs> That's when we're going we're gonna to pile it down. And you're going to be like, okay, gonna like, I need to loosen this up. And then we're going to get drunk and I'll be a little like, okay. So this is what Jesus is saying here. And um, there's something else that's happening. Jesus is, there's other things. Jesus is saying, I'm the one. You know, I have the authority. Because you don't have to fast. <laughs> All throughout, there's this, there's this powerful view that, like, if you want to get close to God, you have to, like, do certain things and make yourself righteous, and you have to, like, prepare yourself to, like, to try to get yourself closer to holiness. And fasting in this time was very much seen as that's a way. And it, it, it would, you would look different. I mean, this is an agricultural society. This isn't a, a place where people have to work for their food, and you don't typically have lots of food. And so if you fast, and then you also are a person who works the farm, you will become very physically weak, and you will start losing weight. People can see it. And people go, oh, he's, he, oh, he's, he's trying to see God. <laughs> Greater righteousness. And people would see these kinds of things. But Jesus is saying, one, I have the authority to just say no. And two, I'm going to redefine it anyway. <laughs> now, um, I want you to understand something that's happening here. Like, we live in a time. Now, this is issue of the bridegroom. There's, there's so many deep layers of, of profound meaning in this passage. But I want to just say this thing. Israelites understood that they have a special relationship to God, which is something like bridegroom to bride, right? Oh, a, a marriage. And yet they say, like, this marriage is not being consummated. We're looking forward to this time, and yet... Right now, we feel so distant from him. But you know that you don't have to be Israelite to know that feeling. All around the world, this is, people don't know this. (laughs) But the whole world is looking for a wedding feast. You know that? (laughs) You know that? Think about what wedding is. Why? Look, in in a few weeks, you guys are all probably, there are a lot of parties, right? You have dinner, your, your general dinner parties when you invite friends over. And in a, in a few weeks, you're probably going to go to a Super Bowl party, and hopefully, you know, you'll have fun and you'll eat a lot of bad food, and hopefully, the team that you like will win. Okay, um, I, I hope the team that I really dislike will lose. I think you guys know which team that is. <laughs> All right, then I will, you know, like celebration, and then I will eat up. But, but a wedding, a wedding is like, why do the Israelites party for days? Because in the center of a wedding is that people, everyone knows that the, the, the thing that makes us whole is love. And you can't be married by yourself. You can't make love happen and become whole by yourself. You need somebody else to come to and be united to that person. And when they love you and will seal themselves utterly in union with you, 
then there's something beautiful, so much so that everybody will we dance and we'll eat and we will drink. That's what it means. And but you know that all of history is looking for that. That actually we're wandering around this earth and we just feel like, I gotta make it on my own. That actually, you know, there's all these like people to in our culture today, secular, that we could secular, we you know, we don't need religion anymore. That, that's crazy talk. <laughs> that's complete crazy talk. <laughs> Everybody around the world knows that someone else, someone a lot bigger than us, must come and love us, love us so deeply, not just say, I love you, I take, no, will marry us. And all throughout here, this thing says, why, when the bridegroom is with them, when I am with you, why would you fast? You don't need to fast. And this is a reference here, and all throughout, you know, this is the promise of the gospel. That the gospel isn't just that, that we sin, and that Jesus will pay for that sin, and then, you know, somehow we're, now we're going to do pieces of religion and then we're going to try to climb up and try to get better and closer to, to this God who's at least, thankfully, he's forgiven us and then we get to go to heaven. But actually, the deepest thing is that he will be with us forever. And actually, in, if you go through the rest of the New Testament, Paul talks like this, that we are in Christ. You're in Christ. You know what that means? That he is with us forever. It's not just like he just, it's like a fuzzy feeling with us that he's, we're in him. It's like, it's not that even, he's even just in us, that we're in him. And there's another language that the way we put it, that his very humanity, the life that he has won for us through the resurrection, we're living in that life. It's a whole new kind of humanity. And you guys are, for those of you, who are, I mean, for you regulars, just forgive me, I'm going to say this again. There is us living in my own humanity, the one that I want to say. It says, like, I'm Susung, and how does Susung define his humanity? Susung's, it's Susung's power. It's Susung's wisdom. It's Susung's morality. It's, it's me. It's Susung in Susung. You know what that means? I'm just in the old Adam. I'm in the old. The old humanity. The fallen. The, the wicked. The blind. The lost. The dark humanity of Adam. But actually, would you come into Christ? He's with you, not just kind of with you. He's with you forever. You're, the language that like some theologians just use that we're in union with Christ, that you're united to Christ. So now you're in that new life with him forever. It's not now, I went from Susang in Susang in the old Adam, now into the new person, the new kind of humanity, the new kind of humanity, which is really the divinity coming into us. That's what Christ has done. But let me offer you something else. There's another picture here. Um, it's, very, it's very important that the passage is talking about wine. <laughs> There's a lot of times people tend to think that uh, religion is, well, that's all it is. It's like, you know, you go and you, you know, you're fasting. That's like religion. Pray, religion. You go to church, that's religion. And there's a lot of people today because they, they feel that, why do you really need that? I don't really see it do much. You do this piece of religion and, and it doesn't really have effect or power. But that isn't what Jesus says. Because, well, if you get, you know, like John's offers some uh, religion, but if you follow my, do my religiosity, that's not what he's saying. Hmm. He's saying, I can get rid of, you know, why we can have that? Because actually with me, people get to drink a new wine. Hmm. And wine, so some people think that if we pray, nothing happens. <laughs> Sometimes even Christians think that. If you pray without faith, 
then you know what? You, you really are doing a whole, just a lot of meaningless religion. But to the people who really believe that we're talking to a real and living God, and he's actually going to listen and real power is going to come in. That's like you're connecting to God, right? That's what real prayer actually is. But to most other people, it doesn't seem like it actually d does anything. But let's try something else. Let's go to a wedding feast or just some party, and let's crack open a big bottle of wine, and then you drink it. One glass, then two, then three, then four, then five. What will happen? Well, some, we'll go, okay, nothing happened. Will nothing happen? No. What will happen is you'll start doing this. The room will start this. We will, you know, you, it will have power and effect over us. And you know what Jesus is here saying? You come to me. You get to drink a new wine. There will be power. There will be something new. Now, the way the other portions of Scripture tends to put in Ephesians chapter 5, there's this, um, a passage which I hope that you should all learn. It's just, um, do not be drunk with wine, but what does it say instead? But be filled with the Holy Spirit. So it says, but be filled with the Spirit. This is, um, so, uh, you know, I have a cousin who doesn't believe in Jesus, and, and, then he, and he goes, is, is drinking a sin? I'm like, nope. He goes, oh, you can drink? I'm like, yep. I go, I go, but getting drunk is a sin. He's like, it is? I was like, yeah. <laughs> it's very explicit. We should be filled with the Spirit. And it's the best wine there is. It's a wine of the Spirit. Not the wine of, uh, of like religiosity. Now, as we come to and believe that Jesus offers us himself, that we're united to him, and that this is drinking in the new wine of the gospel, um, there's like three, I want to just emphasize three things that this passage offers us that's, that's the power of this wine. Right? Just, like, just three in this passage. And I want to go over them quickly with you before I go to the second part of my message, which is the three ones. Number one, first is that there is joy. <laughs> that there's joy. Fasting is to walk around in life and say, I'm hurting. I'm weak. Right? Now, maybe you're there. And if you feel that you need more of Jesus, maybe you would like to pick up a fasting habit. It's not a bad thing at all. right? But primarily to embrace Jesus is to say, I give you, you can dance now. <laughs> You can, just like even in our service, I honestly do not like those churches where everybody's like super buttoned up and like, forget that, okay? You should be able to come to church, and if you're hurting, you can cry. But mostly, there should always be peace and joy, the peace of Christ. And then that just spills out into our life. Why? Because he has paid the greatest price. You know, we, we, are, we know that we're not righteous enough, <laughs> We know that we keep sinning, and yet, and yet we're forgiven, and yet we're washed, and we're loved, and that he will never leave us, and now we live in him. Not, it's not even so much that he lives in us, but that we live in him. <laughs> Why can't... Okay, let me just put it to you this way. Are you worried about your job? Are you worried about your bills? Are you worried about your health? Do you really, really believe that none of these things if you really, really think about it compared to the fact that there is hell <laughs> and death and condemnation and my self-hatred, your money, your money is nothing compared to if you hate yourself because you think you're, you're a horrible, rotten person. Um, you know, the fact that you're sick is nothing compared to the fact that eternal damnation <laughs> is possible. 
They're like, oh, this is, okay. I mean, like, oh, this pastor, he likes to talk about eternal damnation. Yeah, because it's real. Huh. And some of us are tasting it in the time and present, but all this is gone. And instead there is love, which can never leave you. Shouldn't that give us joy? Can you believe that? The Christian is always going back to believing that so that we can always get back to joy. The serious business of heaven, according to C.S. Lewis, is joy. Isn't that incredible? Second thing, freedom. You don't have to fast, because what is fasting? Is to say, like, at least the way it was practiced then. Oh, you know, everybody will know. And I'm, you know, like, it's very, very serious. Okay, I've got to to climb my way up to God and get my, and I got to do this thing. And that's how so many people think. That if I don't clean myself up, now I want to say this very clearly for you. For you to come to God, for you to come to Jesus, you do not have to clean yourself up. In fact, I would even say this. The person who's trying to clean themselves up before coming to Jesus isn't coming to Jesus because they don't know who they're coming to. (laughs) The person who knows you're coming to Jesus, you don't clean yourself up. You come wretched. You come hungry. You come naked and you come poor. You're free. You get it? Because he will forgive you. He has washed you. He will never condemn you. He accepts you. You're free. (laughs) And then now we just have to try to learn how to do this toward each other a little bit, which we stink at, all right? And we we, we even stink at just believing that Jesus does that for us. I mean, okay, many of you guys, just just for a moment, you you have an imagination. In your imagination, you have a picture of how Jesus is for you, right? I mean, I have have a picture of Jesus in my mind and what his face looks like toward me. And in in your imagination, does Jesus look like this? Here we go again with you, okay? (laughs) Is that what he's like? And I'm telling you, I had to hear the gospel a thousand times before that picture went away. He's never like that with you. Because he paid so that he could always shine gentleness and love and forgiveness forever on you. That's freedom. Can you believe that? And the third thing here that's here is newness. I won't say it's too much about this, but... um, you know, it's one thing like you have a sin issue, but then you know that there's a sin issue you can never get rid of. And then the sin issue that you know the other person can't get rid of, and now you're married to that person. Great. <laughs> Oldness. Your marriage gets old. Your friendships get old. <laughs> you know, like, um, I'm a big football fan. I'm a huge football fan. And I'm not even excited about this Super Bowl. It's getting old. You know, you know, Pastor Young and I are like, like longtime friends, and we love sports. You know, we don't even talk about sports that much anymore because for us, it's getting old. You know what Jesus does? He makes us new. You know that I um, had this, uh, this thing that my, you know, there's this thing that my dad says, and then it makes me really mad. <laughs> it hurts me. So then I say this thing to get him. And we go into the old. But only in Jesus. That relationship. My old self. Heck, maybe even football can be excited again. 
He makes it new. That's the new wine. Let's go to part two. Let's talk about something hard. Um, it says here in this passage, and most people never pay attention to this thing, verse 39, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. It's very, very interesting. You know who's asking these questions? The Pharisees are like, hey, what's with this? You know, Jesus is saying, I bring a new wine. But there are some people, they actually like the old wine. They actually like the old life. They like their old self. They like themselves in Adam. Susan and Susan. They like who they are. They like their righteousness. They like their morality. They like the kind of humanity and the life that they think, this is it. This is good enough. And people who are, they still like the old wine. You know what? You can't, they won't ever come to Jesus. You want to know this is the number one reason why people don't come to Jesus? Because they think their old wine is good enough. And you know what this passage is talking about? Most, most people in the world know they need some way to get toward being a better person, a newer kind of person, some righteousness. They look at this themselves and they're like, there's something not right. It needs to be better. And, and we're living in a time, I mean, when a lot of times people feel that, um, you know, like around the world, how do you get better? You got to connect to the divine. You need some kind of religion to like, you know, motivate you, give you something else. You know, like more and more people in our time think that, that, that that's not working because honestly, it doesn't work. <laughs> so I have some agreement there, but more and more people are just thinking like, okay, you know what, we'll just do it ourselves. And so when they see this, you know, way to try to like better yourself through religion, they go, it's not working. And so then they just think stuff is irrelevant. But so they know they need something. There's so many people in, in our city, they, they, I can tell they hunger for things of God, but they don't think church or religion has anything to offer. But here, right here, is a critique of the religion itself. There's a lot of like cynical and tired people. I tried that. Didn't work. Okay. But then there's somebody else, you know, they haven't gotten to that. It didn't work. They're still trying. And then, you know, you know there's always varying different kinds of trying, right? You know, you could work out and do like 10 jumping jacks and eat a little bit less. But then there's the kind, you know, they do the, what is that, the P, what do they call that, P90 or whatever? <laughs> I don't even know what those, they call those things, right? Those are like the serious workout type folks, but some people treat religion like that, you know? We got to do the rules, and we're going to tithe, and we're going to fast, and we're going to, and then they, they keep ramping it up, and what do they do? They, oh, hey, this is working for me. What's wrong with you? And... And in the Bible, the main folks that were there, that Jesus, do you notice that Jesus didn't, it's really weird. <laughs> Jesus didn't clash with the drunks and the prostitutes and the lepers so much. He clashed with the religious. <laughs> the people who thought the fasting and the praying, what's okay? Oh, wait, see, you, can, you know why they're asking this question? Because he, he's, he's threatening them. It's a threat to their righteousness, this religious righteousness. And he's saying, that's not going to work. <laughs> that's the old wine. It's the old wine. But I'm bringing something new. Now that's one. That the way most people think, I want to say this first to this. The old wine is a religious Phariseeism. And you know what? Christians, I see this constantly. 
you know, if, if you've been in this church for a while, you know, you've probably heard me. I'm, we're constantly trying to beat the Pharisee out of you. You know that? Well, not beat the Pharisee out of you. Gospel the Pharisee out of you. <laughs> out of you? Out of me. Right? That's one of the first things we're here to do. Not what we do. Not the old enslavement. But the new joy and the new freedom and the newness of the new wine. But I want to talk about something a little bit different, too. There's also a different kind of Phariseeism that's going on in our society, which I think a lot of people are blind to. And I call it secular Phariseeism. There's a lot of people in our, in our culture today who think that they are a nothing. What do you believe in? I, I'm agnostic. I'm a nothing. I don't believe in Jesus or Buddha or Muhammad or whatever. I'm a nothing, right? And so because of that, they just feel that they're kind of neutral and don't, and they're not, she goes, certainly I'm not a Pharisee, really. <laughs> Pharisees are the one who take their religion seriously. And they think this righteousness, if I build this righteousness, that's more than good enough. But I think there's a secular Phariseeism. It's very powerful in our culture. And um, secular means of the world, because from the old Latin word secular, everything is of the world. There's no of heaven or of the, of the supernatural and above us. And the resources we have in the world, that's enough. We don't have to worry about this, you know, beyond, beyond our world religion stuff. We can make it in our, but then guess what? If you think that, they go, well, we're not religious. Really? <laughs> there are people today within secularity, they think they have their morality. <laughs> they have their purpose. They build their own identity. They make their own meaning. And you know, if something can give you your morality, your purpose, your identity, and your meaning, that's a religion. <laughs> you don't, you don't want to call that a religion? That's your religion. And there are very, very powerful you know, forces in our culture. In fact, they're very upset at Christianity. And in fact, more and more, even trying to change laws to disadvantage Christianity or even bring disapproval and condemnation to Christianity because the moralities clash. The beliefs clash. The values clash. Because it's a clash of religion, really. But they don't know it. That's the old wine, too. <laughs> now, am I just making this up? You're like, that's really clever, Pastor, calling secularity religion. <laughs> but I wanna, what I want to offer you is some, little, some portion today. That there are some people today who are finding out that today's secular religion and Phariseeism is still an old wine. And bit by bit, that this new one has the power for newness. Right? Now, this is a book I want to draw from this book. Um, the, the author of this book is Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. Anybody heard of her? Rosaria Butterfield. She's starting to become famous. Maybe not enough famous for this room, apparently. All right? um, but, um, or, or infamous, uh, depending on, there are people who really, like, literally hate her guts. Okay? So if infamous, depending on how you put it. Now, and um, I want to, this is actually her second book. This book is called Openness Unhindered, Further Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, Sexual Identity, and Union with Christ. And the reason for that is because Rosaria Butterfield, before she came to Christ, she was um, a tenured English professor at Syracuse University, and she was very, very active in the gay rights movement. In fact, she said, I helped create the movement. <laughs> so she wasn't just, you know, like, I'll, I'm a lesbian. I'll just live my life quietly over here. She's like, no, I am like full on. This is my identity. And all you Christians, right? Anybody else who says that like, we're sinning, you are evil and we hate you, right? 
And she tells some of her story. And so like this, her first book was called um, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Talk about an unlikely convert, okay? And I'm, I haven't even gotten into this uh, fully. I'm only like a couple chapters in, but so far it's dynamite. <laughs> and she is challenging our culture. You know, chapter two is identity. <laughs> and um, I'm going to draw from this book. Now, she, just a quick background. On, so for those of you who don't know her story, um, she, she tells a little bit of, of, of her conversion in, in chapter two. She grew up in a liberal Catholic environment, you know, like, like where you know, you're Catholic, but they didn't really teach the Bible or anything like that. And um, so she didn't grow up like, I'm gay. You know, it's not like she's like 13 years old going, I'm gay. She didn't have that kind of, she wasn't like that. She only came to her lesbianism later on, full on as an adult. And um, she was happy in her life. She says, I'm happy. She was living with her lesbian lover. She has purpose. She's in this community where she loves these people. They love her. They have morality and purpose, and they're going to go fight for all these things. Right? So when you describe her, describe her life, you feel like she's in the church of her religion. Right? That's exactly how, when I listen to someone like that, I'm like, okay, you, that's your church. That's exactly what she was in. And she decided that she needed to learn the Bible. You know why? Because I got to learn what my enemies think. So she was going to learn the Bible because I got to know what the Christians think about us because I know Christians think that homosexuality is sin. And so she goes, I, I, I need somebody who really knows the Bible to like help me like, you know, to, to, um, to, uh, to, to walk. So she would write these essays about, you know, that Christianity is bad. And then she says she could hate mail from Christians. But she got this one letter from a, a pastor. His name was Ken Smith. And she goes, this letter was different. It didn't offer argument or condemnation, just engagement. You wanna, let's talk about it. And it turns out he lived in the same city and not too far away. And so Ken, invited, Ken and his wife, Floyd Smith, invited him over, invited her over for dinner. She accepted. And so she said, and she said, the first thing he did was he did not preach at me the gospel or try to convert me. Instead, he treated me like a neighbor. And so I said, oh, he's safe. He's not trying to fix me. <laughs> he's going to like treat me like a neighbor. And she said at that first um, dinner that um, he prayed. And she says he, she had never heard a prayer like that before. She said, I'd never heard this kind of prayer before. Ken spoke to a God that seemed to actually be there. <laughs> and he was vulnerable and humble. And Ken's God was a God who was firm, yet very gentle. I'd never heard this kind of prayer before. And that's like, this is like bit by bit. You know what's is happening? New wine is coming into her life. <laughs> and so they would read... She has a PhD in English. She has an expert reader, an expert on text. I'm an English major too, so I love her like her her like kind of semi rants about like bad reading, okay? Because I I like yes, okay. Um, but she she talked. So she started. Re she said she the way she put it was like she would devour the Bible, not even just read the Bible. She would read like whole books at a time and devour the Bible. And ultimately, she said that the Bible started becoming bigger and bigger. And she started reading it again and again, multiple times. And, then, and her like, lesbian lover said, this, this Bible reading, is, it's changing you. It's changing you. And 
And then she would say to her lover, she says, but what if, what if it's true? What if we're really in trouble? And we need this forgiveness. And so she finally went to church. After, I mean, reading, she probably knew the Bible better than most of the people inside the church, okay, after reading it. Can you imagine if one of these days has somebody who ever walked into the church, radical lesbian who's read the Bible more times than you? <laughs> and here she is in church. And Ken, she went to, of course, the, the, the church. It was a Presbyterian church, past, you know, where Ken Smith was. And he preached on Romans 1. He preached on Romans 1, and, and she talked about how important Romans 1 is. I don't know if you know this, but Romans 1, she says Romans 1 and Genesis 3 are like bookmark, book, you know, like bookends for me about how I see things, because those are two of the most profound discussions about sin in the Bible. And it's, she was also interested in Romans chapter 1, because I don't know if you know this, but Romans 1 is very, very explicit that homosexuality is sin. But this is really interesting. She's, she, this is the way she put it. As Ken was um, preaching through Romans 1, she could see that, like, you know, people have this idea, oh, you, you know, if you're gay, you'll go to hell because, you know, that's bad, right? But she began to realize that Romans 1 does not present homosexuality as like the worst sin ever or something like that. It's that actually it presents um, homosexuality as a symptom, a symptom of a deeper problem, that there's a sin underneath the sin. That it's actually a symptom. And so this is the way she put it. As she was listening to him, she goes, the image of me and everyone I love suffering in hell, because, you know, she's, she's a lesbian, and all the people she loves are, like, lesbians, and, and, and they're gay. She goes, the image of me and everyone I love suffering in hell crashed over me like shark-infested waves of a raging sea. Suffering in hell, not because we were gay, but listen, but because we were proud. We wanted to be autonomous, it was our hearts first, and our bodies followed. That's what Romans 1 is saying. First, our hearts worship ourselves, autonomy. <laughs> and then, somehow that leads to sexual sin. She goes, it was our hearts first, and our bodies followed. I got it. I heard it. Finally. I want to say a little something about this. This is the central religion of our times. And it's not just affecting people outside the church. I mean, I know lots of people inside the church. You know what our biggest problem is? It's autonomy. Auto, self, nomos, law. I make myself create the laws. That's our religion. It's in the church. And pride. So she, she goes on. How does one repent of a sin that doesn't even feel like a sin at all? <laughs> She's like, I felt happier and more complete <laughs> when I went to my lesbian lifestyle. But rather a normal, not bothering another soul kind of life. And so she said this, I did not know what to do, so I prayed the way I heard Ken pray. Remember the way Ken prays? He often would call upon the Lord to teach him this or that. So I prayed that the Lord would help me to see my life from his point of view, not my point of view. Not Rosaria living in Rosaria's wisdom. Not Rosaria living in, in the old Adam, the old wine. But Rosaria saying, would you show me your point of view? And, I, and not long after she said this prayer, here's what happened. Um, 
It was then that I noticed as I looked around my house, I had dozens of pride posters. You guys know what we were talking kind about. Of, we're not pride. She puts pride in capitals. Big P-R-I-D-E. Pride posters. T-shirts, coffee mugs. I mean, pride all over the place. The flag that waved in the breeze at my porch was a pride flag. You guys know what those look like, right? Pride had become my best friend. In the LGBT world, we define pride as healthy self-esteem. But something started to crack a little, and I dared to just ask this question. Was I domesticating a tiger? You guys understand what that means? I thought pride was my friend, but maybe it's a tiger that's going to eat me and kill me. You know, she never thought about it. pride. It was always a good word. <laughs> Gay pride. But now it's like maybe it's not a friend. <laughs> and here's what she put it. Um, in the LGBT community, the opposite of pride is self-hatred. <laughs> but in the Bible, the opposite of pride is faith. So listen to this. Look, if you believe that everybody in the world hates you, for your sexual practice and your identity, then what do you need? You need to have some pride in that, right? What if you yourself are not sure that you should hate yourself? Because lots, I've met plenty of gay people who've wrestled through that. Is there something in your life that you're not so sure is good about you? And you, if you don't have God, what do you, you know what, we, you know what the, the regular human being does? It goes, oh, well, but, but I make money. <laughs> I'm good looking. <laughs> oh, I know how to do my hair and like dress really well. And, that, and you know, like I lost weight and I'm not as, you know, I'm prettier than her. You know what we use to make ourselves feel good about ourselves? Pride. I don't understand. You know, I don't hate gay folks. I actually hurt for them because they don't know that there's underneath. It's not homosexuality, which is their, their biggest problem. It's that they don't have the Lord. <laughs> And they think pride is their friend. And so she goes on to this. This was when the question inserted itself like a foot in the door. <laughs> this question, maybe pride is more like a tiger. Did pride distort self-esteem the way love distorts, lust distorts love? Do any of you guys want to have love that's all like, just completely like corrupted by lust. If you want real love, it shouldn't be just corrupted by lust. That's what she began to think. And you know what I think this is? For her whole life, she had the door closed against Jesus. And she had it locked up for many locks. No one, you can't come in. But with this question, the new wine started slipping in, and Jesus put his foot in the door of her heart. This was the first of my many betrayals against the LGBT community. Whose dictionary did I trust? The one used by the community that I helped create or the one that reflected the God who created me? And as soon as the question formed itself into words, I felt convicted of the sin of pride. Pride was my downfall. I asked God for the mercy to repent of my pride at its root. And that's was the pathway that she began to fully, fully embrace the Lord. Now I want to close this message this way. 
You know, most of us, we go into our life and you start feeling low in your life. What do we, we eat? <laughs> or then we go to some other place in our life that we've, where we can feel good about, we about to buck up our self-esteem. We go to our self <laughs> or some goodness inside of our self. Or then we go to the old wine of religion and to buck up the self. I've got to be a better Christian, so I go, I'm going to go fast. Or, and then I buck myself up. Or like, you know, you just use a secular way. But really, all oh, that's the old wine and it doesn't work. You need something new. We need to be made new. And a new wine is being offered us. It's the wine of union with Christ. The wine of the Holy Spirit. What's being a, um, there's a, there's a, one of my favorite verses.